You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hi there, you're listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopy. Hoopy, what's going on, man? Not much. Busy week. Helping a couple clients prep for HRSA audits. Uh, I even have um, just a bunch of other stuff going on. So staying way busier than I want to be. But excited to to talk to, to our buddy Boer today. Yeah, we got special guest, you know, kind of at the, the bottom of the uh, depth chart of 340B lawyers on the podcast here. Not not intentionally, but uh, we, we figured if we're asking all these lawyers to join us, we might as well ask the uh, the turnkey lawyer to join, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Rich, we'll let you do a formal introduction in a little bit here, but we're really happy to have you on here. Everybody's been waiting in, for, for Boer to make an appearance on the podcast, so I'm glad you were agreeable to coming on. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, I think you're right. Scraping the bottom or the depths is correct, <laughs> but <laughs> it sounds sounds fun. Looking forward to it. All right. Before we start asking Boer a bunch of uh, lawyer questions, Rob, what's going on in 340B news? A uh, couple of new changes to new policies on contract pharmacy restrictions and some some revisions to policies. Can you share with everyone what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, so as usual, probably at least every other episode, gosh, it feels like maybe every episode, we have some updates to the manufacturer restrictions. So we officially have pharmaceutical manufacturer number 27. Um, that's Isai, um, um, that manufacturer. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think I want to say it's six drugs that they're adding to the list. Um, does that sound right? Uh, yeah, there were um, it was like a dozen and a half NDCs, but I think different strengths. So six yep. different unique uh, chemical entities. Yeah, so so unfortunately, so that's number six. They kept it pretty simple, actually. Uh, so Isai, six drugs, specific drugs, but you're right. Um, some of those drugs have multiple NDCs. Um, hospitals only, not grantees. So grantees are in a nice little stretch here uh, of not being affected. And the last one that affected grantees was number 18, Bosch Health. So from 19 through 27, they've focused on hospitals and not grantees. Um, so that's, a, you know, I, I guess that's a silver lining, right? Um, grantees are, I think, more heavily affected than um, hospitals from a contract pharmacy perspective. But we do have quite a few hospitals that are also heavily affected. So I don't, I don't want to say hospitals um, can handle it easier because many, many, many are struggling because of this. But they, they have the um, kind of simple one where basically if you have an in-house retail pharmacy, it's not affected. If you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy, you're allowed to get a single contract pharmacy. Um, but they didn't mention anything about a 40-mile rule, and they didn't mention anything about entity-owned pharmacies. So we don't know if the, if you can use the health system-owned exception. It wasn't in the FAQs. Um, Date-wise, uh, it's uh, you have to designate by 1022. So you know by the time this podcast comes out, you have a couple of weeks basically. Um, and then 11-1 is the effective date. So we'll be at the end, uh, beginning of the next month. The other thing which is interesting that I haven't seen yet, probably because it's new, but they had a little blurb on Arkansas and Louisiana because of yeah. the contract pharmacy discrimination laws there. They said um, basically that this might not apply and that you should contact ESI to confirm. Uh, but it makes it seem like at least for the moment, they're, they plan on um, being compliant with those two laws in Arkansas and Louisiana. So I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure if you read anything else on ESI and that you picked up on that I missed. No, every, every, I, I picked up on all that. Same stuff, and and also was interested in that last part of their procedure where you have to reach out if you're impacted by the Arkansas and Louisiana state laws. We're going to come back to that subject, I think, with Rich, because I'm curious to get his take on the the viability of these state enacted laws protecting contract pharmacy provisions and kind of countering that to um, the fact that you know 340B programs mandated by the federal uh, federal government. So let's we'll come back to that in a little bit. Yeah. And then a couple other updates, uh, Greg, you probably saw Pfizer, um, or who was already in the um, in the manufacturer restriction list, just added 15 more drugs. I think previously they focused mainly on oncology. And so um, and it was 12 drugs and now it's 15. So up to 27 drugs total. And then GSK added one drug. Um, hopefully I'm saying this right. I always, I always say that before I say a new drug, but Ojara maybe um, to the list of kind of one of those higher cost, higher costing drugs. Um, GSK added. So so a few updates to the manufacturer restrictions there. 
All right. And then some traction on 340B transparency talk in Congress, Senate Help Committee sending letters out to covered entities. Rob, you're passionate about this. Tell us what <laughs> uh, has, has happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying not to, to be overly passionate and keep some EQ intact here, but um, Senator Bill Cassidy from the um, Help Committee, the Senate Health Committee, he's one of the ranking members there, did send letters out to two different um, health systems, uh, Bon Secours, oh my gosh, help me out. Bon Secours. Secours, I knew I got that ONU wrong. Sorry, Bon Secours people if you're listening. Um, Mercy Health um, and the Cleveland Clinic. So they both received letters from um, Bill Cassidy. Um, and here's what's the kicker, right? If he's just asking for some basic information they have, that's great. But if, if I can, just take a couple minutes. I went through and read at least the Bon Secours letter. And oh my gosh, every time I read these, I'm like, why, why, does senator, why do senators and representatives who you know have some bone to pick with the 340 program or some specific ID and recovered entity, almost make it feel like it's a punishment. Um, and that's kind of how I feel. And I don't know how you guys will feel. Let me read it. Maybe let you guys decide before I give you my um, commentary on it. But if I can, there's six categories that they went through. So the first one is they have to provide the, okay, first, let me preface it by, they sent the letter out um, just, just recently, um, 928 and then yeah, giving September numbers 10, 12, right? 14 days to respond. Yeah, two weeks. You have? Yeah, yeah, two, two weeks. weeks. That's, that's less than the amount of time that HRSA requires you to submit your data for uh, a, a true federal audit of your 340B program. Right. So right. Not very flexible. And, ar and arguably, even though that's a lot of data, this is more. And here's yeah. why. it's They want them to go back to 918. So from 928.23 to 918, so essentially five years of data. Yeah. And and wait, wait till you hear this, this hit list here, which is everyone feels like a some kind of punishment to me. The first one is total dollar saved from the 340B program categorized by site of service, therapeutic drug class, and HICS picks and or CPT code, which everyone applies, and the name and address of the dispensing pharmacy and to note if that pharmacy is either wholly owned or partially owned by the covered entity or the health system. Number two, the specific dollar amount directly passed on to patients at Richmond Community Hospital by direct to patient savings on prescriptions, direct to patient savings on their medical bills, or, and indirect patient savings, which if they put indirect patient savings down, they have to ask, they have to provide justification why they feel that should be applied, right, to the, to, to this charity care kind of assessment. Number three, specific dollar amount spent on capital improvement at Richmond Community Hospital and for child sites of, of Richmond Community Hospital, and then other facilities of Bon Secours, I'm gonna try and get that by the end, in the Richmond area. So right now they wanna know, okay, what have you done? Because the article, if you remember, in New York Times talked about them not doing any improvements to the area, to the, to the Richmond Community Hospital area. So that one I get, but still that's quite a bit of work going back five years. Number four, provide documentation governing the relationship of Richmond um, Community Hospital and its child sites and how revenue is generated which I thought was a pretty broad question. Um, number five, provide details on how Bon Secours spends its 340B revenue. So this one's tough. All internal documents that has guidance on how it spends its 340B revenue, a list of officials, so this one's kind of scary, right? A list of officials who have authority over how the health system spends its 340B revenue and all records and communications, this is both written and electronic, involving Bon Secours senior leadership related to expenditure of revenue generated from 340, the 340 program. So they've got to go back five years through emails, written communication, minutes of notes, and collect all these things, and they got two weeks. Oh, and I'm not done. There's, okay, well, Senator Cassidy's not done. He's got one more. Provide all written and electronic communication in which Bon Secours communicated with its provider staff regarding the 340B program including provider incentives as it relates to the 340B program. And that last, last sentence is a little scary because I would think if you're providing provider incentives, are we talking about now some kind of Stark law violation? Are we talking about inappropriateness? And why is he asking? Like, does he know something we don't? Because if, I think if the news media knew it, they would have put it in, in the article that came out. So that last one's a bit telling. I'm not sure what he's going after there, but Again, all of that within two weeks, going back five years, I just feel like that's punishment, not just data collection. So yeah, so I'll, I'll be quiet because that was a lot. I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, this is in incredibly onerous. I can't even imagine, you know, from when, when I used to work in the 340B provider space, how we would begin to gathering all of this data 
let alone gather it under, you know, a short, you know, a short turnaround time when you've got all kinds of other patient care related responsibilities that you have to take care of. I think this seems a little bit short-sighted to presume that, you know, this hospital and health system has the bandwidth to pull this together in such a short amount of time, let alone debate the merits of what they're asking for here. Rich, do you have any opinions? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I kind of look at it, um, Similarly, if it's overly burdensome, there's always the argument, look, this is just not reasonably practical to respond to in the time frame given. I mean, if you want to talk about congressional powers, I mean, from my perspective and thinking about congressional powers, I mean, they have the, they're pretty, they have a lot of power to ask for information. Now, of course, the reason they can do that is it has to be in line with their legislative duties. And so, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is, you know, it, it borders on definitely either punishment or sending a message. Um, can they do it? Most likely, unless you're able to say, look, um, this goes beyond what you would need to reasonably legislate. The problem is that's a very broad, right? They, get a, they have pretty broad powers to subpoena people when they say it's in line with what we legislate. Um, it's also, you know, could argue this is really in the realm of HRSA, the administrative agency, not the legislative branch to do that through a separation of powers. Are you really are you really asking the questions so that you can better promulgate laws and regulations or are you kind of stepping on the, the you know, the, the toes of um, of the administrative branch that should be doing this? But short of that or the Fifth Amendment or really arguing this is a private matter. I find it tough to argue that they can't ask for the information. So then you're back to, yeah, it kind of seems punitive to at least some extent, or at least sending a message, um, whether there's constituents or other folks, special interests that want to send a message. And um, you're, you're probably the best recourse for them would be like, look, it's just not reasonable, practical to be able to provide that information. But it certainly feels kind of punitive or like a little bit extreme if you're thinking about it in the context of, hey, is... Are they really trying to find information out that will help them better legislate, right? Um, kind of seems to intuitively go beyond that, or at least that's my gut feel from that. Awesome. I, you know, and the other one other thing I threw out there, and, and, you know, all of us have come from hospital side. And so we know, you know, there's busy seasons. And I just feel like right now, right, we, we know talking to a lot of our clients and IDNs that they're short-staffed. A lot of that's because they're not rehiring. There's some attrition because a lot of health systems are running in the red, right? We see it in like the Becker's articles or the, you know, some of the news media outlets that, that report like modern healthcare, where we, I keep seeing health systems that you know, they're not profitable. So they're, you know, they're letting go of leadership, they're letting go of staff, they're not rehiring, they're trying to make do it less. Um, and then, you know, we're getting into that cold and flu season. We are, we're in the process of trying to get, you know, vaccines out again. And now it's not just flu vaccine and pneumonia vaccine. Now we're throwing in COVID vaccine. It's just, it's a busy time of the year. And I just think, gosh, it just, it, it again, seems punitive to me. And, you know, I, and I want to maybe steel man Senator Cassidy here and just say, you know, and maybe he's, he does feel 340 program. I think he has been kind of um, sort of against the 340 program, at least has negative feelings toward the 340 program to a certain extent. Um, uh, and I'm not saying he thinks it's all bad, but he definitely feels reforms needed. And I just, I think this is, Kind of lashing it out in that regard, and um, and 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 again, what I first said is I do feel it does feel a little punitive towards these two health systems, which, um, you know, we happen to know these health systems, you know, at least through just talking to some of the leaders there and knowing some of them, you know, it, it's a small world, um, pharmacy and three forty especially, and I think these are good health systems. I think they do try and do the right thing, so I, I do think it's a little unfair. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I think this underscores something that we have said here numerous times: is that all 340B covered entities need to be—they need to have transparency, and you know, the need for a program impact statement or an impact profile kind of on their radar. If you're not doing that today, you need to be thinking about how you articulate what's happening with your 340B program in terms of uh, you know, the oversight that you provide, as well as the 340B savings and the community benefits generated from your 340B program, because this is going to be a common topic, I think, as congressional leaders debate the future of the 340B program. Yeah, no, for sure. Hey, Ed, I think that was the only update we talked about, Greg, but I did have one short one, if that's okay. Yeah. So remember when we talked about that article about biosimilars where there's a, I can't remember what journal it was, but they put out an article saying that bio, that 340B um, has, is the cause of a decrease in uptake of biosimilar utilization. 
Yeah, that health affairs article. Yes, and so they said. So, so their their end result was so three forty minutes reform, and we, we talked about it on a podcast a, a bunch of episodes ago. Um, but um, what I you know, so we did on the podcast, and and that's fine. And I think I actually um, spoke to um, I want to say it was either three forty report or some other news outlet about that, and they published some information I said about that along with some other people. But I do want to uh, just commend uh, Maureen uh, Testoni from um, 340B Health, the CEO of, and president of 340B Health. She actually, um, I think she wrote a response to that health affairs article um, and kind of kind of on the same grounds that we talked about, about just their results actually, you know, are pro- probably a bit of a stretch um, in her response. But just just want to just publicly thank her for also going to bat uh, for 340B hospitals there and you know, when we see publications out there that don't make sense or drawing conclusions that are likely inappropriate based on the data or the results that they have, um, which always makes us raise a question like, how, how do you even get there? But uh, just want to highlight that um, that came out of 340B Health and just want to just want to say I appreciate um, them also stepping up play and being a little bit more formal about a response uh, to that Health First article. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Rob. All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to talk to Rich Boer, 340B lawyer extraordinaire. We'll be right back, folks. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendBend Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendben.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Rob, we've got a really special guest with us today. I'll let you handle introductions here. Yeah, uh, so we have uh, my friend and colleague uh, and business partner, Rich Boer. Um, we affectionately call him Boer because those that have known us for a while, um, he, he helped co-found Turnkey Pharmacy Solutions with me and, of course, our other partner, Rich Iverson. And as a side note, we did invite Rich Iverson onto the podcast, and he said he would try and make it. Um, he did text just before we started recording and said, still on the golf course. And so if you know anything about Rich, he's in kind of set by retirement. Um, so is Rich Boer was supposed to be, but um, Rich Boer's failing at retirement. Rich, Rich Iverson's doing it right. He knows what he's doing. Rich Boer, I definitely, I would say, failed, failed retirement. Um, Boer, I don't know if you have any comments about that, but you have to hold them because I'm not done yet. Um, so, and but I, I will say the other thing that we've been, you know, that uh, Greg alluded to is, you know, we kind of have this, we like to have guests on and for whatever reason with all the legal things and everything else going on, you know, we've had Emily Cook on, fantastic 340B attorney, Jeff Davis, another really solid 340B attorney. I mean, and I'll tell people out there, if if you're in the 340B program, you do need to kind of, you know, at least hopefully have um, a relationship, one of these 340B attorneys that really get and know the 340B program. And I like to put Rich Boer in that basket, even if he's number three or four on the list um, these days, uh, which is a joke. Um, I, I, if you don't know, Boer and I joke a lot back and forth with each other. And that's my favorite joke is that he's probably the third or fourth best 340B attorney. Um, Boer, you would say you're probably a little higher than that, though, correct? <laughs> well, I, I'll no, and I'll, t- and I'll explain why in a minute. I think I'm kind of with you on that. And I have an okay. explanation of why. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, before we get there, I also want to thank Mitali. Uh, if everyone knows Mitali, um, uh, it's a site that Boer um, uh, kind of worked with for a long time. And she and I were going back and forth on an email, talk, a little bit of a time with the podcast. And she said, gosh, you know, you should have, you really should have um, Rich on. Rich Boer, he's just so passionate. Every time he came out to our site, he'd be passionate. And we talked about whiteboards and I was like, Boer does love him a whiteboard. Um, and I did want to ask Boer about, so first of all, thank you, Matali, for recommending Boer. And that's why we have him on the podcast today, because she said, you should really have him on. I was like, all right, I, I can I can probably make that happen. Um, and uh, but uh, I, I don't want to talk about whiteboards, Boer. What's up with the whiteboards? Yeah, you know, I, I've always thought um, whiteboards, you know, with enough whiteboards, you could kind of, you know, rule the world or, you know, I've always kid around. There's a few worn out jokes I use on audits. And one of them is if we have enough whiteboards, we may not figure out all the problems here, but or the, all the challenges, but we might, you know, be able to resolve um, some basic physical uh, questions about the universe or something like quantum mechanics, just because you just start getting into whiteboards. But in reality, it's just a source of truth. I think they're really advantageous because if you're writing things down when you're going along, it to be totally serious, 
you know, you, things don't get lost in conversation, right? You, you, you wrote down what was happening in some basic thoughts and things we agreed on. And it's very easy on a whiteboard to come back to those basics when you start going down a rabbit hole and, and bring everybody back together. And so they're like, that's not what I said. Exactly. Now, this is what we agreed on. So they really are a great source of truth, uh, to be a, a completely honest. Um, I think they're very effective okay. that way. Do you have one in your home office? I do. I figured you did. Do you, do you travel with your own dry erase markers? Is that true? Uh, dry erase markers. Yeah. I have a great story on dry erase markers, by the way. I was at a, I'll hurry. I won't go down this rabbit hole um, too far. But I was at a client, an important client, and the CFO had just got a new whiteboard in the conference room where we were at. It was a smaller hospital. Very proud. First thing in the intro conference was, do you see this burnished walnut? Uh, you know, encasing, and they opened it up, and there was a whiteboard for meetings. And during a break, we were kind of kin around, and I wrote, we were white writing down some stuff between meetings, or or maybe even during meetings, used a permanent marker. And uh, and uh, I don't know if I, I the, a colleague of ours said uh, that was a client at the time said, yeah, you better figure out something quick that's not going to go over well when it's open, and they'll know, you know, I had 340D on it, so it was hard to. Well, it wasn't me. I don't know who it was. And they'd be like, yeah, who else would be writing 34D? And so I learned, somebody told me at the last minute, great idea. One of the technicians was there. It was like, cover with a raceable marker. And if you do it soon enough, you can, it'll, it'll eliminate the underlying permanency of the marker before. And so it saved my, it saved my bacon. So that's a, a true story from the whiteboard trenches. Wait, 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 wait. So if you accidentally write on the whiteboard with a permanent marker, before like it dries, so if you yeah. identify it and you use the dry erase marker over it, it'll actually help. Then it'll erase. It erased it. Now, I'm, I'm not providing that's that particular that I'm not speaking for every board out there, but um, but it works. It's worked in the past, and I trusted yeah. it online. It works. Really? So, Is that the lawyer cool. in you? You had to give that caveat, the <laughs> <laughs> disclaimer. <laughs> right. There's a little disclaimer, and then we tested it, and it worked. It was repeatable. So. That's kind of a little nugget you can take away from that. If you, if you don't get anything else out, you got that out from this. Uh, all podcast. right. That's so. So everyone listening, you you learn all kinds of three forty three from our other attorneys we had on, um, and you learn about how to fix permanent markers on a dry erase board from Brewer. There you go. So that's the end of the episode. We appreciate you on. <laughs> There's probably somebody out there that's like got this stain on their whiteboard, and they're like, oh. Now they're trying to erase it with a dry erase marker, and maybe it works. Let us know if it works. Well, yeah. remember, he said fresh. Uh, yes, okay. that thing's been on there for a couple couple I months. I it's not fresh, so I don't know. But I'm assuming that at some point it becomes permanent. Maybe. Well, someone let us know if, if it's, it works after the fact. Okay. Well, <laughs> that, I just want – so Boer, but, you know, just to tell everyone, so Boer is not only a lawyer. He's also a pharmacist, so he's one of those special people um, out there that uh, have both a pharmacist degree and a lawyer degree, which I do think is one reason Boers um, does such a good job of understanding pharmacy operations and then intermingling that, intermingling that, I think I said that wrong, um, with, the, with the law and how that operates. So excited to kind of actually get into some real 340B related questions here today. Um, but uh, but Boer, anything else intro-wise? Um, I do want to say that you're a oh. University of Utah graduate from pharmacy school, but then you did uh, Gonzaga Law up in Spokane. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, did that. And then, you know, was a pharmacist first, obviously, went up to, to Washington and uh, worked my kind of worked on as in law school as a pharmacist, could never really uh, step away from pharmacy. And um, then went into like patent law and intellectual property practice, but always worked as a pharmacist and came back, worked for Intermountain Healthcare in a nutshell at the system level. I always just loved um, operations and kind of compliance stuff. And that's where I met uh, Robin Rich. And um, I always joke, though it's kind of not true or maybe true that, you know, way back when, um, you know, the GAO report came out and said, hey, there needs to be more oversight with respect to 340B. And I always joke that the three of us at a system level were in the room, the last ones to leave the room or something, when they were looking for the 340B, somebody to manage their 340B program. At least that's the, the story I tell. And um, we kind of just rolled up our sleeves and took it from there. And then, like a lot of you guys that are listening on the podcast and obviously you guys, you know, 340B started as you just can't spend a little bit of time on it, right, to do it right. So that was kind of the genesis, Rob, a lot of our company. We started speaking, became the experts in our company, started, you know, going to Texas and, and kind of becoming, gaining expertise that way and just realized, gosh, there's just a need for um, experts 
in the field at that time, especially that had actual experience running a program. So, well, uh, Bur, I think you're right. Right. It was, uh, I think I, I went to Utah Valley regional. So I was the urban society, well, between manager and then eventually the regional director down there, but um, at Utah Valley Regional Medical Center, Tina, Tina Armaki, our, our boss, our um, mentor, our, our, our friend, um, kind of basically kind of tapped all three of us and said, hey, we need 340B experts. I need you guys to become experts because um, she, she re recognized the need. And of course, the three of us would go to, and Kevin Jones, to a certain extent, too, who was at our children's hospital at the time, would go to those 340B coalitions, uh, winter, of course, because we were in you know Salt Lake City, so it was a close one, so we'd hit the winter. And that's really how the three of us met. Cause I mean, you and Rich worked together, uh, Ivy worked together at the corporate office, but I was at Utah Valley by then. And even though I spent time at the corporate office previously, it was just before you guys got up there. I think I was with Iverson for a little bit, but it wasn't until we got tapped to be the 340B experts for the health system that we started meeting at the coalition. And I always tell people it's funny, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're kind of, you know, we had a certain budget for, you know, it's good, any good health system, you can't go crazy. And of course, this was back in the day in San Diego when, when we were at the, um, the Dell Coronado. And so like, like good, good stewards of our, of our financials, we decided to go take a walk down the street to maybe a lower cost place to grab something to eat. And we found this, this Irish pub called McPee's. And I remember going in, you know, um, and uh, I think you got excited because they had a, they had, I think some beer on tap. You're like, oh, I got excited because they had a Philly cheesesteak where you could dip it in au jus sauce. And um, that was what I really liked about the place. And we kind of basically talked shop. And if you remember, we the first couple of years, we were just going and learning for Intermountain Healthcare. We actually decided there to start a blog. We started a blog for a couple of years where all we did was share what we were doing at a health system level because we just didn't see information like that out there. And um, that got some traction. And then, you know, I think three years later when we were sitting at the same conference, probably at almost the same table at McPee's, we thought, you know, we had an offer or we had a request from a critical access hospital to help with some consulting. And we thought, gosh, maybe there's a business idea here. We kind of vetted that with Tina and, and, and senior leadership where I was at. And they said, yeah, just fill out a conflict of interest statement and we could start our own LLC and do some, you know, side hustle type stuff. And uh, that's kind of how Turnkey Pharmacy Solutions started. Did I, did I miss anything there? No. Um, the one thing I'd add is you also were the reason you were like, guys, we got to write a PDF book. And um, and I'm like, you know, being uh, like, an overachiever, and uh, you were like all grumbling. But you know, writing a PDF, <laughs> Wait, book, I was grumbling. That's because you guys weren't helping me write it. Is that why I was grumbling? No, no. Hey, hey, you started writing. You're like, <laughs> we all got to write this, right? Because rubs rubs the you know such a go getter. But we all started digging in, and there really is no substitute for learning stuff, especially early on when there's not a lot of information out there. And because remember. The whole focus on GPO prohibition, all that stuff, it was a renewed uh, interest by HRSA because of that GA report to, to start everybody like, hey, triple split billing system, you got to start implementing. So that was the hot thing at the time is how do we do that? It's so complicated. And there was just so much going on. And to be forced to write a PDF by an angry taskmaster like Rob was great <laughs> because it really does force you to understand it at a pretty low level. And especially me, because I'm like, well, I don't understand the statutory basis of that. Where's the federal rule for that? So I'd go back inside them and we'd cite it. And I thought it was just a, it was just an example of starting that, that I wanted to add in just because it really did make the difference. I think we had the ground as expert or pretty good expertise, at least early on because of that. And then we had our experience, right? Operational yeah. experience in pharmacy. So well, I'll say because because I was listening, I was listening to some initial podcast. The reason we did the book was because it was for the it was for the um, our uh, blog, and I wanted people to subscribe. So we created a white paper on 340B, which is what the book was. And so we weren't selling; we were giving it away for free. Just you had to sign up for a newsletter. Um, <laughs> but I like I'm so angry taskmaster. I'm going to actually add that to my signature. Just put ATM angry put that taskmaster. In your, LinkedIn, your LinkedIn profile header. <laughs> um, Word does have some of the best names for people um, titles, anyway. I, I, you know, I know we have we want to talk about 340B stuff, but I, I, I'm fascinated by all, all the stories that you guys share from the old turnkey days. One question I have is, so right now, folks in the 340B space, including us at Spendman, we're, we're struggling with contract pharmacy restrictions and, you know, interpretation of patient definition. Those are like the hot topics today. What were the things back in 2012, 2013, early on in the turnkey days that were really generating all the chatter in 340B circles? Ooh. Well, I think Boer hit one, GPO prohibition in 2013, for sure. That was the huge chatter. Um, just after that, 
the 340B omnibus guidance, also known as the mega guidance, of course, that Hearst never published because basically they found out they didn't have rulemaking authority and that kind of shot the whole thing in the foot. But honestly, back in um, 2012 timeframe, I believe that was closer just after when we started having this huge ramp up of contract farms. Because remember, it was 2010, May of 2010, I think, when HRSA came out and said, you can have as many contract pharmacies as you want. But there wasn't a lot of TPAs. We spent a lot of time during that period trying to just vet the TPAs that were there because there weren't as many as we have today. Trying to figure out, well, what's the best process? Boer, I'll be honest. Okay, can I tell a quick story, Boer? Boer spent two years haggling with Walgreens. And so Walgreens sends us their agreement and they say, this is not redlinable. Well, Boer disagrees because Boer's got a very, very big, big red pen. And so he redlines the crap out of this agreement. It takes us two years to get through the Walgreens agreement. So everybody else is turning on Walgreens as a contract pharmacy. <laughs> and two years later, we finally get a signed contract because Boer was, uh, Boer was um, doing his thing as, as uh, for the redlining. Yeah, I love, I mean, I've had actually had clients give me like a pen, a box of pens. It was sad. Red pens, um, red pens. The red pens. The other thing that I'd say, Rob, at some point back in there, the orphan drug exclusion was kind of a, a mm. big topic at the time, if you remember as well, especially since it's like, you know, hey, do we, are we still tracking based on indication? What does that mean? Um, so that was a big one as well. Um, well I remember. I can say from from my perspective, so you guys know I was a former client of Turnkey. That was a, mm -hmm. a big draw for us going with uh, Turnkey at the time is because we were trying to grapple with orphan drug exclusion, didn't know how we would be able to get voluntary pricing. So you guys had a lot of, I think, really poignant advice on, on how to go out and secure 340B-like pricing for a lot of the orphan drugs for our smaller hospitals and oncology programs that were facing a, a real shortage in, in 340B savings as a result of the orphan drug exclusion. So, well. And, you know, to, to a point, what people don't know is we started Turnkey not to do 340B auditing. That actually happened from another colleague and a friend of ours, Dolly Devar, over at the Clinica de la Raza, where before that, we actually started because um, Intermont had quite a few critical access hospitals. And in my region, we supported the critical access hospitals uh, for after hours entry from one of my hospitals, uh, American Fork Hospital, that was 24-7, um, that was, that was and they would do the remote order entry. And two of my pharmacy school classmates were actually pharmacy directors at um, some of those critical access hospitals and uh, having conversations with them about 340B. And they're like, we're the pharmacy director, we're the pharmacist. In some cases, we're the pharmacy tech. Like we do all the work. We don't have time to become experts in 340B. And so when we first started the company, it was just the idea of, well, there's probably a lot of critical access hospitals, especially standalone ones that are in the same boat. And so our initial thought for turnkey pharmacy solutions, which is why the name's turnkey pharmacy solutions was to help critical access hospitals stand up their program efficiently. Since we had the expertise, we could help them do it. And that was really all we intended to do. It wasn't until Dolly in 2013 said, hey, you've been through a hearse audit now, can you do a mock audit for us? And we're like, oh, sure, we'll give it a shot. I had no idea what we we're doing though, uh, from a pricing perspective. So I think Ivy and I flew, flew out to Oakland. I think the price we charged, I think we got home. It's like, I, I think we lost money on that after we covered our own travel costs and um, paid for our PTO that we had to take to do it. And we're like, oh, we got We probably need to fix this, um, you know, what you charge for it, but uh, early mistakes. But that was kind of our pivot and say, oh my gosh, covered entities really need help understanding their compliance. And that's something that, you know, and Boer, that's what Boer did at a corporate level was really focus on 340B compliance along with, you know, joint commission, controlled substances and everything else. So we kind of had that perfect setup to pivot into the annual independent audits, plus do all the things we're doing for critical access hospitals. And and you're right, it was, if, if pe people may not know if you're new to the program or relatively new to the program that back then, HRSA at one point did have uh, put out a kind of a rule and then a clarification after uh, pharma sued them and pharma won. But there was a period of time where if the orphan drug was being used for a non-orphan indication, you could buy it on 340B. And so tracking that was tough. And, and that was a service we were providing. So Greg, I totally forgot that uh, we did a quite a bit of work doing that. Yeah. It's gonna add to that is um, not long, but hundred percent. And I think that perspective, Rob, when we were going to really just help organizations be, enroll and manage a 340B program, it gave us that comprehensive perspective going into the audits, which I think has been really beneficial. Instead of just, yeah. hey, we're just looking around for risk issues. It's like, no, let's look at your program in, in its entirety from pole to pole. Because if you're managing it day to day, you may not be able to look from pole to pole and everything. You just need that outside perspective. So I think it was an ideal place uh, to come from as well. 
uh, in light of just, you know, those comprehensive audits. I was going to ask you, Rich, early on, what was your approach to supporting clients through HRSA audits? Right now, I think we have a good process because we've been through so many and the process that the Bazell auditors are following is, is fairly um, fairly standardized right now. Um, but that's all built on what you guys did going back to 2012. What was the original kind of approach to, to helping someone get through a uh, HRSA audit experience? Gosh, I remember, and Rob's got some good um, stories too. I just remember one in California, um, a large, but it was a large critical access hospital. That was before Bazell. And so really, you know, the auditors were, were Hearst auditors. One was a fraud, waste, and abuse auditor that I had. And um, it was a different experience. You didn't know what to expect. Um, they really were looking at it from an entirely different perspective than somebody that's, for example, has a pharmacy training background. And so a lot of it, honestly, necessitated, look, prep was, again, looking at your program from pole to pole, recognizing if there were areas that to be concerned about, and really, um, you're almost in a, okay, we don't know what to expect this time, um, let's see what they ask. And um, it just was, you know, we hadn't seen as many, and there just really wasn't a lot of consistency from my perspective, having done a few um, pre-Bazell, right? It was, they were just kind of, I mean, the one I had, it was really a fraud, waste and abuse, a lady, or no, that one was a guy. There was two, I remember their names well. And he just really came from a, I think it was a fraud, waste and abuse deck background. So he had a perspective that was kind of different, right? He was looking at it from, you know, what are the conditions for participation? He really didn't understand a lot about what the patient definition meant. And so it was really uh, just really not knowing what to expect. And then on the patient definition diversion side and duplicate discount side, they were just kind of, you know, we were learning together almost with them on the audit. So, you know, for me, I took away that it, it was more of a learning um, perspective than, than a standard approach I had just because we never knew what to expect, at least yeah. on the ones that I participated in. And then after GPO prohibition, now you've introduced triple triple split billing, you know, for hospital virtual inventory. And that just adds a whole nother layer of complexity. Rob, what, what were some of those first audits like working with OPA auditors that maybe didn't have a lot of experience on the inventory management side? Yeah, no, that was that was a scary time period because people were still just converting over to, you know, dish hospitals and pediatric hospitals and I guess technically cancer hospitals subject to the GPO prohibition. We're just converting over and that's right around the time the HRSA audit started. So, you know, direct orders, consignment, all these areas where, you know, people kind of figured it out for their mixed use side, but didn't have these manual processes to um you know, like we we focus so much on today, decrementing the accumulators for direct orders and having a QA process in case you miss them. And, um, you know, what what about uh, retail pharmacies, right? It was clear that we had to do them the mixed use, but we didn't know at first, does this also apply to the in-house retail pharmacies that we find out? Yes, we're like, oh my gosh, uh, we can't even use retail or GPO in, in the retail pharmacy anymore. And it was definitely some iterative improvement. And I agree with Boer, it was kind of, I'll be honest, it was a little over the place, uh, all over the place. The Because they were a division of financial integrity auditors. They're basically accountants or they're CPAs for for HRSA. They were actually HRSA staff. And I remember one, for one of our clients, you know, like today we know that they're going to do 30 random and five high costs in your administered drugs and another 30 for your retail contract pharmacy sides. You can expect roughly 65 samples. I mean, give or take a little bit, depending Maybe they might add a few more if you get some other settings. But I had this one auditor that that um, couldn't find uh, in the retail side. They didn't find anything. So they went to 100. They just kept going. They just kept kept sampling more and more. They got to 100. They finally found one in like somewhere in the 90s that was they dispensed a prescription for tramadol to a patient who came in for the flu clinic. Clearly a patient of the covered entity. The doctor just didn't document that they gave the tramadol there in a flu clinic. They they failed the finding. We challenged it, and and they still gave them a finding for it, like something that'd be I mean almost unconscionable today for HRSA to do that. But back in 2013, they did. It was it was kind of uh it was the wild west of HRSA audits for sure. All right, let's let's talk about some 340B specific uh, topics. Got questions from the field, questions from our team that I want to bounce off of Boer because we don't get to talk with them every week now. Rich, first topic, GPO prohibition. And just what's your approach to educating uh, 340B covered entity around the considerations for developing a non-covered outpatient drug list? So drugs that you're going to exclude from your 340B purchasing, you're going to buy them on GPO. What, what are things that, 
those uh, covered entities need to be thinking about when crafting that list? I always kid around. Just get the say no to GPO tattoo first and, and go <laughs> from there. But um, no, in all seriousness, that's a good question. Um, there was, you know, the funny thing about um, the GPO probation from my perspective is, you know, obviously you have to be a hospital that it applies to, right? So, you know, um, but if it applies, I mean, so one of the first things I found was sometimes people would talk to other hospitals. And I think, Rob, you found this and Greg, you probably found this. It's like, oh, we got our own covered outpatient drug list of things, drugs we don't consider covered outpatient drugs. And you'd be like, you're not subject to the GPO prohibition. It's probably not a great idea for you to do that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes it was just like, because they had talked to somebody else who had one at the conference and we're like, oh, we better make one. And you're like, so it's kind of funny. So sometimes just if it applies to you, right? Yeah. Um, but really, um, the biggest thing I always thought of the GPO prohibition is, you know, obviously wanting to make sure your accumulator is configured correctly. And we all know that there have been um, pitfalls with your triple split accumulator, if you're just not doing that right, um, then, you know, it's always just like, look at, I always broke it down and this just is me and everybody's got the thing is, what are the pharmacy purchases and what are the non-pharmacy purchases? For the pharmacy purchases, is your accumulator working correctly? Are you buying, uh, let's go through every one of your accounts. Early on, we always, I think Rob did the same thing, we always looked at, look, let's look at your drug purchase accounts and let's have that conversation with the, the pharmacy buyer because that's when you're gonna find out, oh, no, no, I just know I, I I always buy those at GPO because, uh, you know, they're not on site or, you know, they're not really buying 340 bidugs or whatever reason. There's a lot of because it's a complicated kind of standard or to understand. So really just going through every account that's being used on the pharmacy buying side was the first step. Right. Because it's like, OK, why are you buying? And then educating. Look, it's OK that they're off site as long as you meet that the guidance for. Uh, purchasing um, a GPO drugs for a hospital facility as outlined in the 2013 HRSA guide. So then you kind of, so the way to break it up was go through each pharmacy purchase account, kind of talk about what exceptions to the GPO prohibition, if you'll call them that, were out there, whether it be, look, they're offsite at a different address, they don't use a GPO account different than the parent, you, you know, um, et cetera, you know, that 2013 guidance, or maybe it's not okay, it's not registered as child sites. Yep. Yep. Or maybe it's, hey, maybe it's not an uncovered outpatient drug at all and talking to about the definition and seeing there's exceptions to that definition and 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 let's look at those drugs and, and that usually is how you unwind it on the pharmacy side. And I think that's the best way to educate. It's just kind of like, for me was, let's look at every purchase account and look at when you can and can't buy a GPO drug, right? Like what are those exceptions that would allow you to do that? And then obviously on the non-pharmacy purchasing side was usually a wake up call a lot of times where it's like, look, this applies to the hospital because I think a lot of times way back in the day, a lot of folks would just figure, oh, that applies to pharmacy. Well, no, it applies to, you know, your your entire organization. Um, if it's, you know, you as an organization cannot, you know, obtain a drug through a GPO or GPO-like arrangement. Um, and so kind of explaining that, talking about where other, what, what other places in the, in the um, hospital system are buying drugs, let's find out. And then let's make sure there's a compliance strategy in place. And so it was always kind of that was the place to start, right? And you go through each one of those and eventually you kind of understand, oh, this is the reason why I can. I shouldn't unless I can identify an exception to why I can buy a GPO by default. So that's kind of been my approach over the years, um, kind of breaking it up that way and then just kind of gradually. And that way, I think because it's such a complicated subject and you start talking about, you know, the definition, um, the statutory definition, everything. It's just a natural way operation of the lead folks that haven't thought about it before into that discussion. And then it, it kind of intuitively makes sense when you're talking about them in terms of the practical practice of purchasing drugs. So that's kind of been how I've approached it with clients. And I think it's worked pretty well. I mean, I think it's a confusing topic. And so, you know, you need to, for me, I always have revisited every year that I've audit with clients it's like let's go through that again what we talked about last year will things change yep. um so i think it's a great practice that way to do and i think it starts sinking in that way rob what, what are you what are your thoughts how do you navigate the discussion with the client around what drugs to designate as exempted from the uh, covered outpatient drug definition yeah i mean i i, I focus on um drugs that are either 
that, that aren't, aren't actually billed, especially drugs that are supplied by materials management, right? That's one of the things we started doing early was touring materials management and identifying what drugs are there that they're providing on a GPO contract that likely aren't being charged because if material supplies, it normally is just GL cost uh, transferred to the department and they don't usually bill for them because then, you know, the nursing staff or clinical staff can just pull them off the shelf. So it's a good place to start. And then, of course, making sure that if that's the case, that pharmacy isn't also splitting or buying those same drugs on 340B GPO WAC and making sure that the pharmacy also purchases them the same way on GPO and excludes them from the 340B program. That's one category. The second category are truly drugs that you don't have audible records for because that means you're not actually billing for them or even documenting them, um, right? So like sterile water vials, saline vials, flushes sometimes, those things. You just got to look at it and say, okay, what don't we have records for or audible records, which means they can't be covered outpatient drugs. And the one thing Boer, uh, a word Boer used, which I still use today, people are like, but it's not consistent, right? I, we wish the whole pharmacy procurement world was perfectly 100% one way or the other, but there's um, just like the 340B program, there's a lot of gray. If you think about IV fluids, which is a very common NCOD drug, you do sometimes bill for it, right? So you might have like in an infusion center, you might have a patient coming in for hyperemesis where the only drug they're really getting is an IV fluid. Technically that's a covered outpatient drug, but HRSA has asked us to be consistent in our application of our, of our exclusions to the covered outpatient drug rule. And so what we say is it's too hard to say, okay, we're gonna treat that hyperemesis IV fluid as, as okay, but all the rest of it, you know, hanging in the OR or when you hang it with blood or all these situations where you're not getting reimbursed for them, um, where they could be considered bundled and therefore NCOD, it's it's tough to splice that or split that up. So we just say, just be consistent. Just put it all on your NCOD list and say, look, and then we use the word commonly bundled, right? Because it's not 100% bundled. If that's the case, almost very few drugs would actually fit that criteria, but we have to be compliant and we want to be consistent. So we just use the word, if it's commonly bundled, then you kind of get a pick. If you want to go NCOD and not take 340B pricing, then that might be the safer route from a compliance perspective, so do it. And so that's kind of our approach. Yeah. It's just look for those scenarios where it's already being bought on GPO and figure out, okay, do we have to move it to pharmacy because it is a covered outpatient drug and it's not bundled? Or if it's bundled, do we want to put it on the list? And I just kind of go through that same methodology and process with every drug and location that's buying outside of pharmacy. Yeah, I mean, you said something, I'm glad you used that example because you know, it was always, and I think it's really interesting that the HRSA rule or Apexis rule, if you will, was changed. It, it went missing after a while, but the original FAQ, I mean, not rule, I'm sorry, FAQ was, hey, for every drug, it has to, there has to be a defensible basis, which I always start with, right? Like, like Rob was saying, either there's some that just don't have a pharmaceutical pricing agreement all, at all. So you're not directly reimbursed and then you tie that back to the language, then it's not for which it's not directly reimbursable. Other times, um, maybe it is, but you're not being directly reimbursed because it's bundled with the procedure. And so that commonly bundled comes in um, and you can imagine all the weird things that happen, especially with organizations that say, but we are reimbursed sometimes and not others. And so that commonly bundled um, often, you know, what is it? How does your Medicaid reimburse um, becomes important, but um it's kind of one of those rabbit holes that you could just go down <laughs> a real a, a real long way. My recommendation, it goes back to what kind of hoopy, I love it on the supply chain. We always have toured that, um, you know, where it's non-pharmacy purchase, if you will, often. And either, yeah, pharmacy takeover or consider a strategy like putting on the non-covered application drug list is, I always practically think it's a great idea. You can tour the, go see what they're sit what's sitting in the warehouse, but that's not always the best, um, you know, and people scoff when I say, well, maybe generate a list from your, um, your you know, supply chain um, of all the items they buy. And everybody's like, well, that's thousands and maybe it's a loss of number. There's no, and, and really, because there's a lot of misconception of what a drug is, anything with an NDC, you need to be kind of worried about, right? Because they have a pharmaceutical pricing agreement. So the great, the thing I always say is generate that list, even if it's huge and just start eyeballing and knocking it out. And so usually you can identify a lot of things that would have an NDC or that could be likely be drugs. And it's, it's, you can go through it faster than you would think. You know, you might have 11,000 items and I'm like, yeah, but I think with a, with one client that we were getting ready, um, we're doing an audit. I think we went through it in an hour together or less and kind of identified everything that we were worried about. So um, there's some practical steps you can do um, in line with what Rob's example was to kind of identify and keep up on, on those items. And the problem is if pharmacy's not buying them, they could start, you know, somebody could requisition something that you didn't even know about. So it's always good to, it's one of those things where you just got to keep up on it and regularly man, manage it. 
Well, I, I think that that exercise of reviewing what materials management to your essential supplies buying is good, not just for 340B purposes, but just for general understanding of medication management in the hospital. There may be things that materials are buying that need to be under pharmacy span of control from other regulatory standards, whether it's Joint Commission or Department of Health. So, you know, it's it's not just uh, an exercise in ensuring GPO prohibition compliance, but also, you know, it's good practice to to kind of be in the loop in what your materials is buying to make sure that all drugs are accounted for in your um, your overall med management strategy at the hospital. All right, let's move on to another topic. Um, we've talked about this a number of times here, but Rich, we want to get your your thoughts. This is the, the ongoing saga that is HRSA FAQ 4301. So if you recall, that's the FAQ that was published by HRSA back in June of 2020. I think, Rich, you wrote the the turnkey spend men kind of write up on what the implications of this were, kind of resetting the interpretation of when uh, outpatient departments are eligible. So allowing for immediate use of 340B drugs in newly created um, outpatient departments, really advantageous development in the 340B space as hospitals were standing up new clinics and new service areas in uh, response to the COVID pandemic. Apexis had communicated to covered entities that this was permanent interpretation of child site or location eligibility, not uh, related specifically to the PHE. And then when the Biden administration expired the PHE in May, so away went FAQ 4301. What, what's been your take on how that's all played out? Yeah, wow. Uh, great question. Um, it's uh, certainly not the only, I mean, especially, you know, having had a legal practice, um, especially intellectual property and other stuff, seeing other agencies and other agency actions like that with rules and promulgating rules or things that are even not quite rules, but guidance. Um, you know, was it a rule or is it more of a guidance is a big question. And, and what enforcement authority does HRSA have? They set the standards in terms of some guidance, you know, and then everybody argues, is that, is that honestly a rule that was promulgated or is it more of a guidance document? So um, it's certainly... To me, the way I looked at it is that FAQ was a reflection. See, we all know 340 is kind of a gray area, right, in terms of enforcement and, and what is an eligible location or not, right? And so, you know, as an agency, um, Hersa said, an OPA said, well, we got to define something. We got to tie something to an eligible location. So they came up with these requirements. And so when they send out an FAQ that says, well, look, here's our enforcement or our perspective on what we mean by eligible location, that you know, the average covered indie out there is going, okay, they they kind of defined what an eligible location was to begin with and things had to be tied to an eligible location. They're the ones that kind of, you know, started enforcing that. So then when you see them saying, well, here's how we see it, how's how we anticipate enforcing this, or here's our perspective, you know, it was kind of, uh, to me, they didn't tie it to any particular, I didn't remember, recall it being tied to any particular occurrence like the national emergency. It was really just like, hey, this is almost like a clarification. We're not retracting, we're not changing it. We're just kind of further clarifying what our perspective is. And so I thought that was, in my personal opinion, a little bit of challenging, maybe even bordering on unput covered entities on an unfair position. Because basically covered entities said, okay, I am I'm interpreting the way you did this, not tied to any particular event, that this is how you interpret eligible location and this is how you anticipate enforcing it. And so um, from that perspective, then to have it come back and go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, that was tied to to an event and that's over now. And it was almost like saying, well, our perspective isn't the same anymore on eligible location. And, you know, it led back to ambiguity, if you will, on how they were going to enforce it. So I didn't interpret that as, hey, we're now saying it can't happen. And, you 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 know, I interpret it as uh, it's not interpreting, well, you have to have it necessarily um, actively registered, it was more like our, that interpretation that we threw out there isn't, we're not officially behind anymore. So kind of move on as you will with what you think is the best approach. And if you'll think about it, most of what, and it's, Pixis has to do this to some extent, they'll usually defer it back to you and your policies and procedures and stuff anyway, when yep. you ask them detailed questions that the enforcement is unclear. So my perspective is, like everything in 340B, I just tell clients, look, it's really a, a risk versus benefit analysis by you. But, you know, we take a very compliant perspective, a very um, conservative approach. Um, but it's generally you as the covered entity must determine the course of action and what you are going to rely on as 
what you know what you're willing to decide is the right approach based on what you perceive as the risk and benefit because there's simply just not enough information out there to make a determinative stance so i love that we have a great um, slide that we produce that kind of shows kind of almost like a risk stratum perspective. And it's not that the higher risk is necessarily wrong at all. I just don't think there's enough information out there for Kubernetes to know definitively at this point what to do and not to do. So, you know, it's a long-winded answer saying there's no right answer. I think it depends on the covered entity, unfortunately, in this case. And I hate saying that, but, you know, point to the black and white or anything determinative on what an eligible location is at that point. And then look at the, 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 some of the legislation, or I mean, the judicial stuff going on, the cases out there that are questioning what an eligible location is, period. So to me, it's a perfect example of that gray area where on a case-by-case -case basis, a client has to sit down and determine their risk tolerance and the risk cost benefit of what they're gonna do um, in just really an unclear world. It'd be really nice if we had a little bit more guidance that way. And I guess, um, Rob, we're, we're not going to see much clarification on this issue unless HRSA publishes some type of policy on this or we see some experience through HRSA audits, right? That's that's my guess. Yeah. And and of course, we, we I, I'm not aware of someone directly. Uh, we, we are aware of a covered entity that had that in there, um, that, that it had that provision in place in June after May 11th. And um, that's globally in the 340 space. I want to put that out there. And so waiting to see kind of what if that comes back as a finding and if it gets challenged, because we do have some sites that, you know, are interested in using it because otherwise it's going to really delay and um, be impactful to them. But I know we've covered this quite a bit as well, so I won't um, repeat anything we said. But, yeah, it feels like we're in a waiting pattern for some people trying to see, well, what is HRSA going to do? Because we just don't know. Can I ask one other thing? I add one other thing, and it's just from my perspective, my limited perspective, having done the audits with the clients I did. Most of the time, what I found um, is the clients were like, look, at best, we know this is going to be an eligible location. We're either getting or will in the process of receiving outpatient revenue and expense anyway. And so for a lot of clients, I particularly work for, I can't speak for others. It, 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 the luckily the impact now, like Russ said, there's probably some that the impact was more significant. Most of not all the clients I worked with were kind of saying to themselves, well, no, I, I want it to be registered anyway on the, on the, on, on HRSA with outpatient revenue expense and reimbursable line. So luckily for my practical experience was that most of the clients I worked for were very relatively conservative in that area anyway, right? Because there's a lot on the, and so the impact was maybe less than it could have been. And there may be some others that it wasn't that I'm not aware of. Yeah. I feel like I've seen a spectrum where, you know, some covered entities have said, look, there's really no value in us, you know, immediately using 340B in this department until it gets registered. And then others that have opened up departments and said, look, we, you know, if we have to wait for the cost report to be filed and for the OPA registration process to occur, we're looking at significant loss of savings and may not be able to keep this department open if we're not able to you know, generate 340B value from this department immediately. So, Rob, I don't know if you've seen differently from your perspective as well. No, I agree. I, I really haven't. Um, I, I, I kind of feel the exact same way about it. All right, let's move on. Um, we talked a little bit about the most recent pharmaceutical manufacturer restrictions on 340B ESP, ESIs, um, procedures, and they, they stipulate in their notice to covered entities that they want you to contact them if they determine whether additional contract pharmacy options might be available pursuant to Arkansas and Louisiana state law. So we've got two states who have enacted laws to essentially protect contract pharmacy provisions within the 340B program. Rich, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the, the viability of these state level laws, given that 340B is a federal program. Yeah, well, disclaimer, um, and, and it goes back to what Rob said originally. It's like, are you okay be the third or fourth attorney? Absolutely, because in my legal practice, I made an early decision, and I'm, there's a reason I'm qualifying this, to kind of be more of a consultant and an auditor than at practice in the context of a practicing attorney and practicing law at 340B. I mean, I have a practice outside of it with intellectual property and other things. So I, I will qualify that, you know, it's not like I'm, this is my area of law and I'm, um, you know, exhaustively searched it. But from my high level perspective, especially, you know, I guess I look at it as, and I think you're asking about, you know, how does, am I correct in saying you're kind of asking how state law and federal law kind of clash together, right? Like, can yeah. they do that? What is it? And really, 
you know, my early days in law school, I was always fascinated about kind of how federal and state laws kind of conflicted with one each other. So I took a conflict of laws class. Most a lot of attorneys have that were in law school. And so I always just go back to that classic conflict of laws thought, you know, standard that's like, you know, if you look in the, the Constitution, you know, the supremacy clause, uh, Article six, I think, it, you know, it's really, you know, federal law, federal, the, the federal government has a, a right to promulgate laws um, to run the, you know, to run the federal government and exercise their federal powers. And it really is do state laws and they don't have a right to, to, for example, veto state laws or prevent veto laws. But I will tell you that states have the right to promulgate laws as long as they don't conflict with a federal law. And so, you know, if you imagine you could take go into conflict of laws, you're like, oh, can you challenge the federal laws being too broad or not having, you know, being unconstitutional, et cetera? Sure. But if you have a federal law, generally state laws can promulgate their rules to do what they need to do for their state, as long as they don't conflict. And there's a whole practice of law and a lot of attorneys practice conflict of law and really get into a lot of legislation about what is the conflict or can we attack the underlying state or federal law as part of it. So you can imagine all the case law out there, but I just always looked at it as as long as it doesn't conflict with what the federal law says, then usually you're fine. And if they do, the federal law effectively usually takes privacy and in all cause and effect that the state law becomes kind of almost in effect, not in effect anymore. And so that's kind of how I look at this is, you know, it's called federal preemption and it's the federal law preempts the state law if they conflict. And so um, yeah, I guess that's a high level perspective to start the conversation with. You know, do they conflict for one thing? Do the state law directly conflict with what the federal law says? And, and there's a good argument that it doesn't. And there might be an argument that there does, does it does too. So I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts on that. Well, because right, because that's the problem, right? I think that's the actual test. And I think that's what, you know, the, the drug manufacturers are suing. Uh, the, the states on this. Um, I think that's our argument that, but the, but the problem is the statute's silent. So arguably there isn't, right? There's a there's a disagreement what the statute actually says. So I don't know if there's enough, if the statute's silent, then is there actual federal law around this? Or is that why the state's stepping in? Because there isn't. And so I think that that's the the fun legal test that I think is occurring right now. And I guess we'll, I, only time will tell what the final result of that is. But um, that definitely fascinating right I, I think i learned more about legal matters from you and uh, the 340 program than i have in my entire life um so you know I, I like to say um um i'm i don't have a jd but i sure know more uh legal things than i ever wanted to um thanks to the 340b program so uh but appreciate you and all the all the uh you know knowledge you've shared with me over the years it's always been super helpful and as i've helped our clients out i was hoping ivy would pop on he's been trying to get on and been trying to get on um, I was breaking news if he actually made it. Uh, I told him, I said, hey, dude, I threw you under the bus and told everyone you're golfing and didn't want to come on. So you might want to hop on, at least say hi. And he says, oh, I'm trying to log in. But I think uh, I think the true story is when I sent him the invite for the podcast recording, he booked his tea time right after that. Like he said, I'm getting out of this and he's booked himself a, a tea time. So, you know, it's yeah. a running joke with our clients. Um, the ones that have had Rob and Rich Iverson, I'm both on. And it's like a good a uh, good rich and a bad rich and uh you know i just think it changes from day to day who the good rich and bad rich is right i was gonna say i was like, which what is the good rich and bad rich um I, I you know just so you guys know um where i i was trying to look for the the the, the shirts from mcp's our event that we did at mcp's number of years ago for our clients and um i think the um some of our uh, 340b colleagues at salem I've one of our clients my... made you guys a thing one and thing two shirts and you guys were wearing them i'm, I'm yeah, trying rich to dig that rich two and uh, quite funny and uh, Iverson grabbed the rich one, so I was rich too. And so I was just had to spin it as the, the new and improved rich. And it's funny. Uh, one of the many um, kind of worn out jokes that a lot of our clients that have had me auditing them have to hear. Um, I've got a whole plethora of jokes that I just tell over year after year. If they've had me before, and I get the courtesy laugh, so it's good. Really quick, just super fast. Um, it's so funny. Um, I didn't know, for example, in the beginning, you mentioned that Mitali mentioned maybe having me on the, that's great. Um, unbeknownst to me that she'd said that, uh, Greg can attest to this, I was suggesting, and I'm going to just throw out the paperback, maybe we should um, see if Natalia sometime wants to join our podcast potentially on. Huh? Uh, I think it'd be great. So a shout out to her that she's just so good at what she does 
it'd be great to hear her perspective one of these days on the podcast, potentially, if she ever wants to. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think I've asked and she said she said uh, she'd love to come on. So we got we've got a couple of topics that we're thinking about um, if she's game and that she, she's done some presentations at three for to be health. And um, she gave, gave a great uh, presentation on kind of analyzing the impact of the IRA and 340B savings moving forward. So we should definitely have her on and talk about that. Because I know as folks are looking at the list of the first 10 drugs that CMS is going to negotiate prices on, um, people are trying to understand how to kind of, you know, anticipate what the impact's going to be. All right, before we wrap up, Boor, we've been doing this thing where we ask everybody what their favorite order is from In-N-Out. What is your go-to item if you're going to go to In-N-Out Burger after an audit? Yeah, I'm so embarrassed. Um, I've only been to In-N-Out Burger once. What did you I get? <laughs> it's not like I'm a health food freak. Um, and I, I can attest to that. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's, it's an obvious. And I, 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 I only ate it once. And I just, I think I, on, as scary as it is, I ordered off the menu because I think that's one where everybody's like, no, here's what you got to order. Because it was a big deal when I went. Actually, I may have ordered up there, but I, I don't remember what the off the order was. Once, so I'm just going to go with the regular cheeseburger. Like there was a double cheeseburger, I think, that I ordered. Okay. I can't remember. You do got to go double. Uh, Greg and I, we always get doubles because you just need a little yeah, more meat. Double cheese. But there was something special about it now. I can't remember. Iverson was with me. If he was on, he'd remember. So I probably style the first. Yeah. So the green chilies are a, a secret secret menu item. That that It's a hit. I love the green chilies. So Yeah, they're good. Oh, see, I should have. All right. Wish I'd had that knowledge before. Right, so, I'm going to have to drag you to In-N-Out. You can come down visit me and Draper. We'll go hit the In-N-Out. Yeah, I will. For sure. I should have gone there more. I mean, I don't know why I didn't. I just hadn't. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, we're gonna wrap this up here, Rich. It was always it's always great t chatting with you. Thanks for coming on. Had a blast. Yeah. Just just to clarify, that's Rich Boer. Thank you for coming on, Rich Iverson. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Can you can we do a follow up with uh, Rich Iverson and can I be on too? And then we can kind of get more. We'll chat with Iverson as well. Yeah. No problem. And and Rich, I think you give me permission. We're gonna use one of your profile pictures too because we like to put pictures on there. So we, we'll yeah. Let's let's. Uh, Let's go to a vetting process on that or whatever we do. But yeah, uh, no, you said yes, so we're good. <laughs> yeah. Did you get it in writing? You know how it, I, it, approval was granted in the accepting of the Outlook invite, I think. So I'm pretty sure I didn't sign up You would have got a red line version back if I had. If you yeah. Had. yeah, there may or may not be pink in that picture. Just, just saying. <laughs> You're a bad man. Um, <laughs> Well, that's a wrap for us. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've got ideas, uh, topics you want us to talk about, questions to ask uh, me or Rob or somebody from our team, or you want to come on the podcast, hit us up at 340B Unscripted at spendmen.com or find us out on social media. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.